Welcome to the Heroes of the Great War podcast. I'm Mark Carmichael, writer, researcher, amateur historian, and in recognition of today, the day that this is being recorded, it is World Radio Day. So I will use my radio voice, talk into the microphone from my basement bunker, and record myself in erase that recording because it's crap and then record myself some more but erase that because it's crap too and then record and erase and record and erase and record and erase and record and erase until for you just for you i produce this wonderfully crafted beautifully enunciated piece of content Again, this is episode 7, so please, if you are interested and you find this compelling, go back and listen to episodes 1 to 5, or 1 to 6. 6 was good, too. Um, this is my next series, and it is called Making Black History with the 116th Battalion. Uh, for those who are unaware and unfamiliar with the podcast, I write individual biograph- bi- I write biographies of individual soldiers, just random soldiers, from uh, who served in the 116th Battalion, but they represent pretty much any battalion or any of the countries out there. They're just individual human stories. And I post them to Substack or also to Facebook. Um, and now I'm recording them for just for the ensure that those who don't have the time to read my long-winded biographies that they could hear it too. So please, if you're interested, hit the subscribe button on Substack or Facebook or on any of the platforms that you are accessing podcasts. Uh, I've posted to a number of platforms, and I appreciate your support. Now again, I wrote the biography of this one soldier in recognition of February being Black History Month. And I do appreciate the fact that I'm probably not the right person or the best person to really tell the story of a black soldier in the Great War, mainly because I'm a middle-aged white guy. So I don't have that same background and same life experience. And um, However, I do have a bit of expertise on the 116th and of the Great War, so... I can help in just outline some of the aspects of what he experienced and where he was and and, and, and what he might have went through. Uh, I do not touch on uh, any evidence or any commentary on ill treatment or uh, hatred or racism that he encountered. However, I do expect that it did occur. I, you pretty much know it did occur in some cases. However, I want to talk about what I can prove, and that is through a thorough review of his service records and any other material that I'm able to find on the soldier. And the soldier's name is Private Gordon Douglas Brown of Brantford, Ontario. And what I can tell you from what I've garnered from research is that really he just wanted to serve his nation. He wanted to do his bit, and he wanted to be treated no differently from the others. And, well, this is my attempt to show just that. Here's the story of Private Gordon Douglas Brown. It had to be perfect. And it was 
yet she continued nonetheless. Her boy was wearing his new pristine Kitchener dress uniform, and she had to make sure he looked immaculate. With deliberate care and attention, she finished her final brushes to remove any errant fiber or fragment of hair that remained outstanding. Proud? She was so proud. In most circumstances, she typically displayed an image of stoic restraint. It was instilled in her nature, the times, the history, the circumstances demanded it. They created it. But the gravity of the situation, this particular situation, was far for far too much for her to remain so reserved. Completing her work, she looked up, and there he was, showing off a wide, beaming smile as he looked back at himself in the mirror. He was elated that he was able to go, to be accepted and be able to join the troops of his nation. He loved so much on an overseas adventure. Visions of Paris and London, ornate architecture, cobbled streets clouded his mind. The war was just going to be his ride. These same images played out in hundreds of thousands of homes across Canada. As wives or mothers prepared their spouse or their son in their final departure. But this mother's experience differed. Surely she was worried about her son going off to war. The newspapers were filled with notices of deaths or injuries of local lads. She was not naive to that reality. Yet still, the pride she felt was deeper, more meaningful. As she looked at her smart, strong young man, one cannot fully appreciate the pride that this event meant for them. The fresh uniform, the shiny buttons, and a cap with the battalion's number emblazoned on the front all showed just how far they had come. For it was within living memory when her grandfather, her, her own grandfather, who, driven by his own demand for it, escaped and clambered north via the Underground Railway and undeterred and unfazed took his own freedom. Now her own son, clad in the uniform of his nation, was ready, willing, and wanting to fight to, to secure freedom for others. That awareness, that realization, shaped the look of intense pride upon her face. And it was justly warranted. It was the fourth year of the war, and up until that point in time, Men like him were not openly welcomed into the Canadian Expeditionary Force. This soldier's name was Gordon Douglas Brown. Gordon was black. In Canada and Canadians at the time were openly racist towards those of color, and that fact was embedded in their society and in the army that purported to represent it. However, a few factors led to slight changes in the situation. Firstly, the battles of Verdun and those of the Somme in 1916 bled the armies of France and Britain dry. And then significant losses were expected for the forthcoming campaigns in 1917, and thus the Allied armies needed men, lots of men. And on the home front, this led to the government of 
the Canadian Prime Minister, Robert Borden, to pass the Military Services Act in August of 1917. So this act called for all Canadians between the ages of 20 and 45 to serve in the armed forces of their country. And thus, on October 4th, just over a month after the act was passed, Gordon Brown was called to attend the recruitment office in Brantford, Ontario, to become a soldier. Upon being drafted, Gordon Brown was 20 years of age and stood five foot seven. He was an athletic young man and a, thus a perfect candidate to qualify to serve his country. We should take note that many other young black men enlisted to, the, to serve and they did so prior to, to the draft and they were placed in a segregated black-only battalion. That unit was called the Number 2 Construction Battalion and consisted of 595 black men. While the military establishment felt that they were good enough to serve, to dig t trenches, construct railways and build bunkers, but they weren't necessarily the right color to fight and die alongside their, the white men who were manning the front lines. That is how racist the establishment the military establishment was at the time. However, interestingly enough, it wasn't really Gordon Brown's experience. Upon being drafted, he was sent to the 2nd Depot Battalion, which is a catch-all battalion uh, for a lot of the draftees and, and, and new volunteers. It was here where he trained and readied himself for overseas deployment. He landed in England in March of 1918 and was then placed in the 8th Reserve Battalion, which is the Reserve Battalion of the 3rd Canadian Division. That unit consisted primarily of new volunteers, soldiers fresh off the boat, and men who had just recovered from injuries received in the front line. Now, being assigned to this unit, Gordon would spend the spring and early summer in, in England learning the art of soldiery, like doing drills and learning how to fight, uh, fire a rifle or poke a sandbag with a bayonet and lots of marches and drills and more marches. And on the 18th of August, 1918, Gordon was sent to France and was assigned to the 116th Battalion who were stationed at rest in the village of Bocmaison. So now, Private Brown is in the village of Bocmaison. And it's important for us to now put ourselves in his boots and try to think about how we felt or how that experience was. For he just joined the unit with another couple hundred replacement soldiers and 116th at the, at the same time suffered about a third of their fighting strengths lost in the Battle of Amiens and the, and the ensuing attacks on the village of Parvillier. So how did he feel? Did he, did, he, did he feel that kind of hatred? And I'm not sure if he did. Because there is also an old adage in warfare or in war itself that 
when your life is on the line and you see an enemy rushing across the field of battle with the whole aim and purpose of killing you, you tend to depend upon the guy to your right and the guy to the left on your survival. And you don't look at the color of their skin or their race or religion. And I will admit that the full and complete story of Brown's experiences over there at that time, we don't know what type of hatred or racism or experiences he had. It was not written down. But we do know it was based upon an interview that Brown conducted with the Toronto Star in 1990, where he said, and these were important words, quote, it took a war to get the colored people and the whites together. And that tells a lot about what he said of his experiences in the front lines with a predominantly white battalion. Once he was in that unit, we do know that Brown was designated as a machine gunner in D Company. And while he may not have known it then, he was sure to find out over the next six weeks that the machine gunner position had one of the highest casualty rates out of all the positions in the battalion. And he would have been front and center and engaged in some of the most deadly and ferocious battles of the war. Many of the men that he fought and served with would have been killed within his proximity on several occasions as they fought the battles of Jokokion, or that is the Battle of the DQ Line, or uh, the forthcoming battle of the Battle of Canal du Nord. And there's actually another aspect of when we put ourselves back into his shoes that will help us understand the experiences of Brown during his time in the front lines. You see, on the 29th of September, in the attack, as the battalion attacked the village of Saint-Alais, once the guns did die down, it would be men like Brand, Brown that would be called upon to really mop up and clean up after the mass slobber. See, two companies of men were virtually wiped out in the attack. 260 of 290 men were casualties in the advance with almost 90, I think 92 of them were killed. And it would be, they'd be called upon the men from the other companies and to, to help assist in the removal of these men and burial of the men uh, right, down, uh, right down after the attack. And then we get back into the, the, the shoes of, of the soldier. We could say that two days later, on October 1st, Brown and the rest of the surviving men for the battalion would have brushed off their blood from their tunics and their clothing and jumped right back into the fight. Again, being a machine gunner, Brown would have been attached to the unit that was sent across the, the battlefields northeast of the village of St. Alais to help secure the western approach to the city of Cambrai. And it was on the final day of the operation, two days later, on October 3rd, when his company was positioned somewhere out in the battlefield, somewhere outside the village of Remiels, where Private Brown himself was hit in the knee by a fragment from an exploding shell. 
And with that wound, Gordon's combat experience, both in France and as a soldier, would come to an end. I find it interesting that in some cases, it could take a long, long time for change to occur. And yet in others, change could happen in an instant. Let's go back to that cold winter day in March of 1918, where Gordon's mother Agnes ensured that her boy looked immaculate before he took that one kilometer trek down Gray Street towards the Branford train station. While she was certainly proud of her boy, she knew that as he traversed the adjoining neighborhoods, the other townsfolk did not always share the same positive feelings. One year later, Private Gordon Brown returned home. He might even have taken that same path home that he took a year before, back to his parents' house on Rawson Street. Now, one year is not a lot of time in the life of a man. However, when he returned, he came back a changed man. And he returned to a changed society. It was not perfect, but it was different. And in an interview with the Toronto Star from 1919, when asked about his perspective on Remembrance Day, the now 90-year-old veteran observed that, quote, The first thing you think about is how you were treated a whole lot better than before the war. And it's from this perspective that I find it, the quote, a staggering remark. Despite all the horrors and death that he was exposed to in modern warfare, the terrifying reality of everything from artillery bombardments to machine gun barrages. Brown's mind did not think of the things that we think of when asked about the Great War. He just regaled that, well, white people treated him a little bit better. And while their pervasive racism that Brown and his family grew up in is a bitter indictment on how millions of men and women were treated merely for the color of, the, of their skin. We can't admit that that grain of positivity wasn't unforeseen, yet fortuitous outcome of the war. And well, it might not have been for all. At least it was for one man, Private Gordon Douglas Brown. Postscript. Gordon Brown lived to the ripe old age of 95. He's buried in Brantford, Ontario, where he was born, where he lived. And his final resting spot is on my go-to list this coming spring when the, when the snow clears up. I want to go drop by and see him and just say thank you. And there's a couple other items I'd like to point out. Is If you are interested in learning a little bit more about the black Canadian Canadians who fought and served our country, please visit the Black Canadian Veterans Stories Facebook group. They do a fantastic job in highlighting men from the black community who've served in both the First and Second World War and it's a great reference material, uh, great reference um, place to learn a little bit more about this important story. 
And there's a final item, and, and, and this is where I'd like to refer to Gordon as a brother. See, Gordon was a member of the Mount Olive Lodge, number one, a Masonic lodge based in Hamilton, Ontario. And me being a Mason means that we have a special kinship, and that's kind of special to me. I'd like to thank you for your time and your attention to, to listen to this story. And there's only one thing I'd like to ask of you, and that is to remember him. <laughs>